Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with music psychology researcher Peter Keller, who started out life as a trombonist and composer, but is now a professor of neuroscience at Aarhus University in Denmark and Western Sydney University in Australia, where he studies the behavioral and neurological bases that enable musicians to play together effectively in ensembles. Many of the topics that came up reminded me of things that previous podcast guests like violinist Catherine Cho, cellist Mary Peckham, trumpet player Christian Steenstrup, and pianist Vivian Hornick-Wallerstein have spoken about in previous episodes. Things like the mental imagery of sound, ways to cultivate a stronger internal pulse, and how to anticipate more effectively. So I was tempted to integrate little bits and pieces of these other conversations into this episode, but that seemed to take away from the flow of this one, so ultimately I decided to leave these out. However, if you hear something in the episode that intrigues you and you'd like to explore it further or hear another musician's take on it, go to bulletproofmusician.com blog and look for the show notes in this episode with Peter. And you'll see that I've left links to specific moments in other episodes that relate to some of the points that Peter brings up in this one. Either way, I hope you enjoy listening to Peter share his insights on what the research tells us about how to become more effective ensemble players and musical collaborators. Someone asked me the other day what genre or type of movies that I like best, and I hadn't really thought about that question up until that point, but as I've thought about it more, I, I think I've always really enjoyed the origin story type movies, like how did Peter Parker become Spider-Man or how did the X-Men come to be and so forth. What I like is you get to see how these little tiny things that don't seem very important at the time end up foreshadowing what's to come. And so before we dive into your research and what it is that you do now, I was wondering if it might be okay to start by asking you to share a little bit of your background because you do have this blended, unusual background of music and psychology. And I'm curious to learn more how that might have come to be and how that led to your current work and, and particular research interests. Sure. In terms of origin stories, unfortunately, there are no superpowers to divulge. But my early interests were in, in music as a, as a performer and composer. And in fact, I used to, um, don't tell my teachers this, but I used to wag school, take days off school to stay home um, and write music if I was inclined to do so. 
um, occasionally. So I was very, very enthusiastic, motivated about that and also performing, starting off playing in brass bands, playing a baritone and then a euphonium, eventually realizing that for a career as a bass player, it made sense to pick up the trombone, to have more opportunities to play in orchestras and actually get paid to do so. So I started studying the trombone and um, attended a tertiary level conservatorium, then a couple of universities before settling to do a performance major at the Canberra School of Music, uh, working with a very excellent trombone teacher who is there only very briefly, Michael Mulcahy. He eventually got a posting in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra where he, he continues to play. So I was very serious about trombone. When, when he left, I realized that uh, I was interested in other things as well. And in fact, psychology. So one of the interesting experiences I had at the Canberra School of Music was the oral skills course was, of course, there were component, the usual components like melodic dictation and all these sorts of things. But the, the teacher there had a method that was quite unique at the time. It was a very active method. We would pile into his office in, in groups of four or five musicians with our instruments and do a lot of performance exercises, not uh, as well as perception, but production exercises, focusing not just on pitch, but really on performing complex rhythms, and importantly, together as a group. So learning how to coordinate complex rhythms together, polyrhythms, but even just uh, complex forms of, of musical texture. And that was something that, that I hadn't experienced before. It was something that had been a challenge as an ensemble performer. And... Of course, at the time, I didn't realize the implications of it fully. I kind of just um, put it to back of mind. And in the meantime, started studying psychology. I moved back to Sydney from Canberra. Once uh, uh, Michael Marquet left, I decided to put aside also the performing and, and go back to composition and music theory and finish my degree in those disciplines, at the same time taking up psychology. That was more just as a, as a hunch and almost as a plan B in case the music career didn't take off. Psychology seemed like an interesting prospect and one that had some sort of security. But of course, once I started studying, I realized that there was more to that, developed a passion for it. And even more to the point, when studying music, so in music theory, my, my thesis was on the Czech composer Leos Janáček, and amongst his many contributions, so he's most well known for, for his operas. And what was special about those is that the way he treated the setting of the text, the language, he did so in a way that was supposed to enhance the emotional truthfulness or veracity. He was trying to communicate the emotions of his characters as reliably and accurately as possible. And to do so, he developed what he called the of course, not in the same language, but it translates to the speech melody theory. And what he would do would be going around the streets, notating snippets of people's speech in different emotional states. You know, somebody could be agitated, they could be happy, joyful, they could be morbidly sad. He would walk around and surreptitiously notate, uh, I guess, in a notebook, um, the contours of their speech much maybe like Messiaen did with birdsong and so on, but uh, Janacek was interested in emotional prosodic qualities of speech, not so much to then steal them and use them in his operas when setting the text, but to train himself to then imagine the text of a libretto and compose a melody 
that was faithful to the contours of somebody making that utterance in a particular emotional state in a real life context. And interestingly about it, he developed this theory while taking a pause from composing one of his operas, Yunufa. And my, my thesis was based on looking at the first act and comparing with the second, third act in terms of how the qualities that you'd expect of a speech like what the melodies should look like to differ between those acts. And there was some evidence for this, and we, we did some statistics to quantify what was going on. But the, the turning point for me was then thinking, okay, that's all great. We've, I've counted every note in the score and annotated every contour, and it really was quite a big job. So in theory, the second and third act should be more emotionally forceful than the others. There was an issue there too that the dramatic potency changes, but the statistics was able to deal with that and account for that. But what the real question then was, well, actually, does it work? And to do that, I realized that one has to do perceptual experiments to play the music to people, ask them about their emotional responses, or even better, objectively do some physiological or other recordings to gauge those. So I decided that's when I had to take psychology seriously, to learn the methods to answer those sorts of questions, which were essentially musicological, but they were really about how humans perceive, how their brains make sense of and experience the music. And one needs to really jump into that to learn the methods rigorously, to apply them in a way that is scientific. So that's that was the kind of a switching point for me when I, I really switched from music to psychology. But still the object of study was music and the way people process music. It wasn't at that stage a question of I want to understand the brain and perception in general and I'm going to use music as a tool to do that, which in a, a lot of work going on at the time was more in that vein. Since then, of course, now I'm operating in both ways and I have a f one foot in both camps because I've learned to appreciate the complex beauty of the human brain and I think it's an interesting object to study its own right. But importantly, it's only interesting in so far, for me at least, how it, um, its role in, of course, allowing us to behave in the way we do and especially in social contexts. And the prime example of that I think is the way humans interact through music. And that was, that's the topic of, of most of my research at present. So I'm kind of curious about this oral skills course, because I feel like it might transition into, I think the first paper that I came across of yours was the 2012 paper on the role of um, anticipatory auditory imagery. I'm not sure if you coined that phrase, but it's the first time I've, I've seen that phrase anywhere. And, and essentially, if, if I understand the paper correctly or the review correctly, it was how engaging in mental imagery during performance was not something that had been studied very much, but it does absolutely seem to have an effect on the performance itself and what the audience hears and so forth. Because, you know, thinking back to when I was a kid, I think I just let my mind wander wherever it felt like going at the time. And it could be related to the audience or food or TV show that I'd watched before and didn't get to see the end of. And I didn't really know what to do with my thoughts in a performance. It just kind of did what it did. And I mean, is that partly related to, and I know your, your experience that you described in oral skills is more about kind of playing together an ensemble and, and that sort of thing. But, but I, I don't know what the question is, but I'm very curious about this, this oral skills class and maybe how that relates to this idea of anticipatory auditory imagery. And, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. I can, I can say something about both those cases, how those concepts, how that concept came about and a, another related one, because in fact, it's a good point. Most of the research topics that I've ended up focusing on arose through 
insights that came kind of through struggle, things that I was struggling with as a performer. Of course, things that came naturally, if anything did, uh, they're, they're back of mind and they don't rise to the level of consciousness. And of course, one could could think about things theoretically, become an armchair philosopher and, and think about problems and discuss them. But I was kind of, although my research is not typically seen as applied in terms of solving a real world problem, it is applied in the sense that uh, it arose through thinking about things that I was struggling with or finding problematic. Most of them are resolvable, but the interesting thing is the way to resolve it and the ways in which the resolution might differ for different people depending on their experiences, capacities and other predilections. So in terms of how the concept of anticipatory auditory imagery came about, now that's an interesting division that I saw in in musical training and pedagogy at the time that most of it was focused on training performance skills as a soloist because that was preparing you for auditions, funnily enough auditions to play in ensembles with others but the training for playing in ensembles, there, there was such training but it wasn't as systematic you know, each particular lecturer might have a particular idea about ensemble performance and, and talk about it in a different way which is an interesting fact in itself that they could all play together well with different perspectives. But I remember the ensemble class doing sectional work, practicing excerpts together. It was kind of something we did occasionally. It wasn't something where there was a particular professor in charge of that that was part of the curriculum. Maybe things have changed. I haven't really followed up the formal ways, and it does vary with institutions. But at the time that I was studying, that wasn't common, whereas solo performance skills was more codified. There was more consensus about how to teach it, with some variation, of course. So the anticipatory auditory imagery came more from the idea of striving to produce an ideal sound as a performer myself. And this is something that the um, trombone teacher was very big on talking about. Maybe it's part of the Chicago school and the Chicago conceptualization. I think it's more broad than that, of course, but it was something that was very much front of mind. So the idea was that, yes, it's no point really picking up the horn and playing a, a sound if you don't actually have a clear idea of what that sound should be. So that was really the genesis of that idea. Whether the term, whether that originated in my research, I don't know. I'm, I'm cautious about making any claims about that because one often finds then that if you read back in the literature, you'll find that the ancient Greeks were talking about it or something. I don't know. But certainly um, the concept wasn't being discussed in scientific terms quite, quite as much with music. But apart from an interesting side note um, that William James, one of the fathers of experimental psychology, in his um, book on the principles of psychology, does talk in his chapter on free will about the singer imagining that the singer does not need to think about, you know, the muscles involved in producing a particular sound. She just needs to imagine um, the ideal sound and it will happen, of course, with the appropriate training and, and so on. So actually, William James, in his so-called idiomotor principle, hit the nail on the head. And that's exactly what anticipatory auditory imagery is. It specifies its role in producing one's own performance. But then, as you mentioned, this on this um, oral skills course where we were playing together, kind of, I don't know how explicitly I realized it at the time, but it it did bring awareness that one has to, and we know that uh, people are told to listen to other performers, but listening in a sense can be thought of, if it's not explained in, a, in more detail, as something that's passive and reactive. We wait for something to happen, it happens, we pay attention to it then and listen. The idea is that the most efficient way is to actually anticipate to 
listen to something before it actually occurs, and that requires mental imagery. So that's the idea of anticipatory auditory imagery, using it to plan your own actions, to imagine your ideal sound, and then you'll be more likely to produce it than if you don't have that vivid image. And then also to predict co-performance sounds. Of course, we have limited capacities to do that, and there are interesting questions about how many different things we can attend to or how many different parts we can imagine. I think one would expect that perhaps individuals such as conductors who deal with, who are able to hear a whole score have special capacities in that regard, and I think there's some evidence for that. And the other aspect that came to the fore in the oral scores course was and I've touched on this just a moment ago when I when I referred to attention, that really another big challenge was dividing attention between what you're doing as an individual performer and what your co-performers are doing. And this will vary with the uh, level of complexity of what you're producing. Um, and in our course, we were mainly focusing on rhythmic complexity, the relationship between parts. And that actually led to another, maybe I do have a a penchant for, for coining odd terms because my PhD thesis was on concept which I referred to as prioritized integrative attending. And that was simply the case that when you are in a complex situation, a lot of people doing things and you're doing it together, collectively performing, you need to, in a sense, divide your attention between what you're doing and what others are doing, but also monitor the overall output if the idea is to play in tune and in time, um, obviously. So, however... The whole thing as a group will not work if each individual doesn't play their part correctly or in, in the way that's agreed upon. So in that sense, attention is prioritized. One's own part is, is highest priority. Of course, with a lot of practice, various aspects of it become automated, but usually those are the technical aspects and the ex expressive aspects one still would like to pay attention to, especially if one wants to introduce spontaneous sounding variations to make the performance exciting, to make it sound improvised, even if it's not. So the technical aspects might be automated, but the expressive aspects can benefit from continued attention. And in a group, however, this involves, of course, paying attention to others as well and to the overall output. So that's something that I found another challenging aspect. That's not something that came naturally to me, at least. I'm not sure what other people's experiences are. So those were two separate concepts that came out of that early music training. The third concept that I've become interested in, and these three collectively form a core of, of the theoretical framework I work with, which I call the ensemble skills framework, is what I call adaptation. And that's the reactive component. The attentional component is spreading one's monitoring capacities across different sources of information. The anticipatory auditory imagery or just anticipation capacity is using one's own sensory and motor system to anticipate, to plan one's own actions and predict what others are doing. But of course, one is reacting to things that aren't planned, for example, that arise spontaneously or even, God forbid, errors that occur, interpersonal timing errors or tempo errors, any sort, and in improvised music, just unforeseen, unexpected events that somebody introduces that are thrilling but need to be dealt with. They can't be th so thrilling that everyone puts down the instruments and just uh, revels in the in the thrill of it. The, the show goes on. So reactive processes come in, and uh, I'm mainly interested in timing. I've more recently focused on other aspects, um, timbral blend, for example, in, in choral singers uh, is another topic that's very interesting. But most of the work I've been interested in is in timing, because if you're not in time and not in tune, um, whatever else you do is maybe not going to be as effective. So timing is very, very fundamental. Um, 
It's very obvious if it's out. And um, so reactive error correction mechanisms um, for, for temporal adaptation. So those three concepts have genesis in separate experiences that I had, but actually turn out to be very much related. And at the moment, what I'm interested in is how the brain deals with them, how they together work together to determine the quality of coordination, and also how they're influenced then by, by other things that are undeniably um, important, higher cognitive functions, knowledge, so familiarity with the parts of co-performers, but also the idiosyncratic way of playing. Because in fact, the, the tension or, or competition between um, different performers' goals and intentions is what makes listening to an ensemble performance like watching a thrilling drama, perhaps, where, where there's tension and resolution, not just at the level of for example, tonal harmony, a cadence resolving and so on, but actually at the way that people are interacting at the tens of millisecond timescale, as we do when we're walking down the street and see interactions that are heated or exciting in some way. So that those factors are all couched in, in a social context. So then another thing that came to the fore eventually is that these processes of, of attention and anticipation and adaptation are in some way related to our personalities. We have predispositions for reacting to others in certain ways to certain degrees. Some people may find it easier than others to, to anticipate um, what others are doing, to pay attention to others, to divide attention. Um, and this is not something about just linked to concepts such as fluid intelligence and so on. This is something more fundamental and more social in a way. And for that reason, the ensemble skills framework that I've been working with, I kind of think of um, as generalizing and in fact, using the same sensory, perceptual, motor, emotional machinery and capacities that we have in the brain for navigating our social lives more generally. So I call this the idea of music as a microcosm of social interaction. And it's probably one could even go so far as to, to say that to understand it, it's safest to assume that that's what humans evolved to do. That was a major factor driving evolution. That's something, a contention that's difficult, if not impossible to prove, and people will argue about it for a long time. But I think it's a useful assumption to make as a basis for guiding a research program. I really like the ensemble skills framework or this theoretical model that you put together because I think when typically we think of good ensemble players, it's kind of a, a vague, abstract concept. And it's hard to know exactly what are these skills. And I don't know if we're at the point yet where we can assess or train these specific skills or how effectively that could be done. But I do like how it makes things more concrete. And I'll try to post a picture of this somewhere. But <clears throat> the three core factors being anticipation, attention, and adaptation, as you described. And and then, of course, there are these other factors, if I understand it correctly, like understanding your co-performers, your ensemble members, preferences or playing styles and how they tend to, to approach things, who's in charge of leading in different sections and so forth. And and then I'd really love to kind of ask you about this, the social factors or the personality factors, because I, I think, I don't know if it was yesterday or, or some other lecture where I heard you talk about this empathy study and tempo prediction, which I just found really quite fascinating, that this general kind of human skill of empathy would be related to whether you're able to play more effectively with people or not. Yeah, that in fact surprised me 
also in terms of the robustness of the relationship. We've seen it time and time again. And the assessment tool for assessing empathy that we use um, has four different subscales. And there's only one of those that seems to be related. This tool has four subscales relate to two cognitive dimensions of empathy and two more emotional or affective dimensions. And amongst the cognitive ones, perspective taking is one of them. The other one kind of oddly is termed fantasy, but that refers to how you kind of identify with characters when you're reading a novel, how much you kind of, um, so not just see somebody else's perspective, but see it really identify with the character in a work of fiction. And the others, the affective components are personal distress and empathic concern. So you can guess from the titles what they refer to. And it's only perspective taking that seems to be correlated with the ability to predict timing of another performer or even a computer-generated sequence that's varying in tempo. Although it turns out that perhaps the reason for that relationship is actually not so surprising, and that's because they both seem to rely or involve similar neural substrate. So parts of the brain's um, motor system or system that is used to control actions. So not just not just to move, not just primary motor areas, but a more distributed system in the brain that controls goal-directed actions to produce certain effects, certain sensory effects. Um, and this system can be used. We use it when we're imagining performing an instrument. We're not actually overtly moving necessarily, or certainly not with the instrument, but if we're experienced, we can imagine all the component processes of doing that. And if we scan the brain while individuals are doing that, the level of activity looks very similar to when actually performing. This depends on experience. The more experienced one has, connections are formed and one detects that um, to a stronger degree. So it's the same system. And w when we're interacting with others and taking their perspective, we're in fact simulating their actions. And that's one of the hypotheses about how we have this ability, how we have this capacity. We're able to simulate another's action. So when we observe somebody doing something, we covertly use our own motor system to simulate that. And that allows us to better understand the, their actions and what their goals might be and to predict the future time course of their actions. And that's what's crucial in coordinating with them. So the idea is that, yes, we use a particular brain network when we're empathizing with people in daily life and we use that same network when we're imagining or internally simulating musical actions of others. And interesting questions arise, the effects of whether we play the same instrument or not. Okay, as a trombonist, how well can I simulate a pianist or violinist's uh, actions? Certainly not down to the level of fine motor skills. I'm even demonstrating fingering of a violin with the wrong hand, and it makes no difference to me whether I use the left or right hand because I don't have this, uh, this direct experience. But however, our bodies apart from that, are the same, apart from those skills. And when we perform, as you know, a lot of information is carried through the visual modality. Though music is typically considered as an auditory art form, especially since the advent of recording, audio recordings, but really live performance and the visual component, we, we know, especially if that's been denied from us, is really compelling and adds something. So visual information is important. And so therefore I can covertly simulate the body motion of another performer, even if I can't play their instrument and simulate the details of the fine movements involved in, in, in triggering actual sounds. And that seems to be enough because those body movements we know from other research, yoked or kind of lawfully related to phrase structure. 
Okay, they might not be, the body is not moving at the level of, you know, 16 notes in a, at a fast tempo, but it's moving at the level of phrasing, and that's important uh, for coordination. Um, coordination occurs at multiple hierarchical levels. We want to coordinate the notes that are going on, but of course we also want to coordinate things at a higher level, at the level of phrasing, and that's really where group musicality can come out, having coordination at multiple levels simultaneously. Another interesting aspect that comes up is that what is perfect coordination, and often the assumption in research is when you measure people doing a task, coordinating, they're playing on MIDI pianos or they're tapping a key or drumming together, the assumption is that the task is to achieve zero asynchrony, zero milliseconds asynchrony zero thousands of a second between performers but of course if you generate music like that it's not necessarily the best sounding performance Uh, some variation is important it tells us something it creates that tension it also allows certain instruments to emerge from the texture and be perceptually salient so sounds that occur slightly earlier it's a phenomenon referred to as melody lead it's something that is very finely calibrated it's in the order of you know 20 milliseconds 20 thousands of a second other styles of music relies on systematic differences between onsets of instruments. For example, in groove-based music, there's a concept referred to as the wide beat. So in a lot of funk uh, type music where the bass and bass drum play with a consistent uh, lag of 30 milliseconds around, so a bit larger than what you'd expect with melody lead. And then at certain structural points in phrases, instrumentalists will it will sound best when they're playing sometimes up to 90, 100 milliseconds out of time with one another. This depends on the particular instruments and, the, for example, the rise time, string instruments, wind instruments, uh, where the sound onset takes a while to ramp up, a while being a very short amount of time, but I'm comparing this to a, a percussion instrument, uh, uh, even a piano, and, of course, drums and other percussion as well, where perhaps the tolerance for synchrony in the optimal levels can vary. I'm curious about something you said a little bit ago about body movement or body sway. And I had a teacher, Don Weinstein, who would have me conduct in lessons on occasion to try to, I think, internalize physically the the pulse or the direction of the phrase. And Catherine Cho, Violets at Juilliard, takes it maybe even one further, where she used to audiate in her head the concerto that she was playing or working on while she would walk around her yard or neighborhood to try to morph wholly with her body internalize a sense of pulse. And I wonder if those are related at all to to what you found in your research. But even, you know, this idea of, I'm sure every instrumentalist has been guilty of throwing their pianist off at points because they made it seem like they were going to end up at a certain place at a certain time, but then, you know, you rush or you drag or something funky happens and time's not actually communicated effectively in the way it's going to be. And and I wonder if there's something that ties all these things together, perhaps that's related to what you found in your research. Yes, there is very, very much so. So what you referred to, making the pulse over, and walking is a great example, walking by imagining, because it regulates uh, the timing. Because if you don't, you'll when walking, you know, you, you'll fall over or, or won't be able to avoid obstacles uh, effectively. Posture and the way one moves is important. It regulates timing. It's interesting the mechanisms by which that might occur. There's some evidence that it might be because it stimulates the vestibular system, so the system that controls posture and balance, and it's tightly linked and plays a important role in rhythm perception. Work going back uh, decades by a collaborator of mine, Neil Todd, has, has demonstrated this and he's continuing this uh, really fascinating work on the role of the vestibular system in rhythm perception and production. So it's not just an auditory sense, but vestibular. This is one of the 
potential explanations for why dance music is most effective when played loud because the vestibular threshold is around it varies in individuals but usually between 90-95 decibels and you know you'll find people complaining about loud music in dance clubs when people were still going to dance clubs which can it's usually to be effective and enjoyable exceeds that level and the idea is that it really gets you moving because it's stimulating the vestibular system which gives you the sense that you're moving and impels you to to actually move and to enjoy it it's pleasurable it's linked to the reward system in the brain as well so just to go back to your um, the point that you raised I think movement needs to be regular to navigate through the environment. When you're conducting, you actually have this nice effect of redundancy because you're not just imagining the sound, but you're making a movement, a movement that is fairly natural to make, and therefore you have visual input, proprioceptive input. You're actually enhancing the sensory information that you have about the timing of what you're imagining or planning to produce. So making it overt actually constrains it. And the word constrained, I mean, in a good way, because one of the problems with human action control is or one of the things that traditionally thought to be a problem is the immense degrees of freedom. We have uh, the ways our bodies are constructed. We can do things in so many different ways. And that's an advantage, of course. Um, it has been an advantage in evolution, but you can also think of it computationally as a disadvantage because there's no time despite the brain being very rapid and powerful as a computing device, it isn't able to compute joint angles of all the joints in the body required to produce a particular action. So if you use a motor program that is falls naturally out of the, the way the body is constructed and conducting movements uh, fit, fit within this description, you can then use that as a scaffold to, upon which to hang all sorts of complex musical thoughts. And this is not maybe 100% related to that, but it seems that there's an awful lot of useful things that we could be thinking about when we're performing, and it depends on the situation and so forth. I, I liked how earlier you separated how a lot of the, the technical and mechanical movements associated with playing your instrument, hopefully by the time you're on stage, largely operate out of conscious awareness. You don't have to think about those things. And of course, that goes into the whole research area on choking and so forth. But I also liked how you made it very clear that you know there's this other part of your performance that very much should be in your conscious awareness while performing, and that's the expressive part. And so I wonder if, say, you were or we were all psychic and could read our favorite musicians' minds while they were playing, I'm wondering if you could take a guess as to, like, what sorts of things would we be able to read in their minds as they're, whether it's in a quartet or whether it's in a, a full orchestra performance, like, what sorts of things should we be aspiring to be focused on when it comes to thinking about expressive moments? Well, I think the reality and the ideal probably differ quite a bit, and we might even be shocked at what uh, performers are really thinking about in some cases. And I say this um, having interviewed some who I consider to be elite ensemble performers. I haven't yet published all of this work. There are snippets of it in some works that I've written where I've included quotes from, from members of Chicago Symphony and uh, even a lot more uh, chamber musicians. Um, including the Lebec sisters. And nobody said anything uh, really shocking. I was a little bit joking about that. But, you know, there is a lot of variation in the way 
people approach the task of performing as ensemble musicians, even at the level of the goals, the things that they think are most important. In fact, I've I've had situations where I've interviewed members of the same ensemble and it, the interview process has opened up situations that they weren't even aware of where they have different ideas and, and uh, as a result have many arguments about certain things. So, and even if not arguing, one interesting thing that sticks to my mind, a, a string quartet that I interviewed, a very high-level string quartet, one member said it's it's absolutely vital to think of the string quartet as a single instrument with 16 strings. You know, you've probably heard uh, people say this, and it, it, it does make sense in terms of emphasising the cohesiveness working as a single unit, single organism, if you like. And yet another member of the same quartet, independently, uh, so interviewed on separate days without talking about it, uh, had the other view that they that what they think is exciting is that it's four separate instruments, and of course they're working together, but didn't seem to see much value in thinking of it or necessity thinking of it as a single instrument with 16 strings. Um, so rejected that idea. So that was interesting. And the, this particular quartet has been at the top of the international scene for um, more than 15, not even 20 years by now. So that sort of thing is kind of interesting. And that's why I really think I link it to, to social interaction, uh, ensemble performance, that is, because it doesn't have to be all this uh, cult-like conformity and, and single-mindedness. The conflicts, mini conflicts that can arise can be what makes it exciting. Conflict might not be the right word because it has all sorts of connotations. But I think at a, at a minute level, they are exciting conflicts that have to be resolved. And that's part of, we know from research on musical meaning and um, emotional communication that What's exciting and what's rewarding and pleasurable in listening to music is when there's a certain degree of tension, our expectancies are violated to some degree, but then the resolution is important at some point, or at least aesthetically, it's certainly valuable. The challenge in understanding this, if one wants to, for example, teach it or break it down in a certain way or explain to people that people's tastes in music might vary. Or when I say taste in music, that's obvious, but I actually mean what they like in terms of how an ensemble is performing. And that's because I think it is related to one's own way of interacting with others. So when we go back to the ensemble skills framework, how adaptive I am, how uh, my capacities for anticipating, um, my capacities related to attention will in some way be linked to what I appreciate when I'm observing somebody else interacting. So it might want to be, in some cases, similar to what I'm doing, some cases different. So I was talking about, I remember now, talking about the degree of conflict. And the degree of conflict and resolution that we appreciate, there might be some cultural constraints on that, what's fashionable or acceptable in a particular time point in history or a particular place. But there are also individual differences in, in what we appreciate that way. So concepts such as something being aesthetically pleasing is very much linked to psychology, individual psychology, but I think not just at a um, conceptual level of meaning and so on, but really down to a sensory motor level. I think it can be boiled down. I'm not advocating some sort of reductionist approach where that's all we need to focus on, but I think it needs to be considered to have a full understanding of not just how we perform music, how we teach it, but also how we appreciate it and ultimately why we do it as humans. And I don't know if this is related, but I was talking to Mary Peckham, who's one of the founding members of the Cavani Quartet here in the States, and, and she talked about how over the course of several decades of performing together, she could 
recall maybe just a handful of times where all four of the members of the quartet agreed that a performance had gone well. Where usually like two or three would have thought that it went well, but then one thought it wasn't, or some of them thought it went poorly. And then that made me wonder if if there's something related to this. Yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly what the situation was um, that you're describing, but I've certainly heard performers say similar things. I think it it once again underscores how this is related to things going on outside the musical sphere because people's moods might influence how they perceive things. And it also depends on what the expectations were. For example, uh, some people may be more inclined to think that it's a good thing if the performance deviates in certain ways from the rehearsals, but other performers may find that unsettling and, and prefer that uh, co-performers stick to what was agreed upon in rehearsals and certainly the dress rehearsal, say, whereas others might be more... We could tie this to, for example, risk-taking. Um, some people may appreciate risk-taking more than others, so this could influence how people feel things go also what they're paying attention to maybe also the roles that they have there may be particular programs where one performer feels that they are a little bit more out on a limb for whatever reason so that could that could affect how well they think something goes i think it's an interesting question from an educational perspective you know there's i think uh, quite some years ago there was interest in whether certain individuals are predisposed to play certain instruments better. Like, is, is there a certain personality type better suited to the flute? And is that different from uh, somebody better suited to play the, the, the trombone or the, the drum kit or whatever? Um, and, you know, that's an interesting question. It gets into the idea of stereotypes as well, which, of course, can be misapplied um, to negative effects. The way I think about it, when I'm linking up concepts such as personality, empathy, we discussed before with, with anticipation uh, capacities. I don't think of these as hard constraints. I think of it as useful to know that our ability to predict tempo changes seems to use co-opt brain networks that we also use when we're inter interacting with others to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. So we have this link. So it means perhaps that we know that somebody, if they're playing a role in an ensemble where, for example, they're, they're designated as a follower, they're accompanying, they will find it easier to predict the co-performer if they are high in this capacity, in empathy. If they're not, it doesn't mean that they should not play their role. It just means that if there's a targeted training regime in the education system, it should help boost their performance on that skill, whereas their ability to adapt and react might be actually relatively high compared to others, so they won't have to work as hard on that. So I think we all have to work hard to achieve excellence, but it probably pays to apply that work in a targeted way that um, addresses things that we may have difficulty with. And we all have difficulty with different things. And this is, this is linked to our way our brains are anatomically structured through experience and also of course um, the way things developed from genetic blueprints but really experience shapes this this is undeniable this is one one big thing that we've learned but also the way our um, psychological makeup is shaped by the interactions that we have through life and these are not hard constraints they are just weak predispositions that it would be useful to take into account when shaping one's training which is kind of a nice way of bringing it back to, I think, what you started talking about in your origin story, which is your experience and your educational process led you to 
identify these questions that you had. And so I have this question that I had sort of a, a secret hidden agenda for asking, and I'll tell you what it is in a second, but I don't want to like influence your answer by telling you what the context is. And so if these ensemble skills are important for one's ability to perform effectively in ensembles of varying sizes, any suggestions or, or ways that one could measure these ensemble skills somewhat effectively? Yeah, for timing, we we have actually a battery of tasks. It maybe sounds nicer to call it a suite of tasks, but in, in psychology, we call them task batteries. A collection of tasks that can be applied. Ideally, it takes about an hour, but uh, I think a, a short version in about 20 minutes that assesses based on a, a mathematical modeling technique. And we ask people to tap along with different pacing sequences that are supposed to capture certain um, timing demands that would arise in an ensemble situation and then we can analyze the timing of the responses and get estimates of how much somebody is adapting how much they're anticipating and how they're integrating their own actions with those of the external partner which is in this case is a computer-driven auditory sequence and this gives us estimates of people's ensemble skills now as i said the important aspect is this is just about timing and that's the most basic requirement and there's many other things on top of that but I think it's a start and I think that could be maybe extended it is a great interest of mine to actually try to apply this in an educational context for both assessing pre and post um, training I would not advocate using this as a selection tool for entry or anything like that it's really more just to identify where people um, might need to devote a bit more extra effort to develop their their skills as an ensemble musician. Right. Yeah. And so, so <laughs> it's good that you mentioned that at the end, because my question was coming out of, of two parts. One, you know, the pedagogical implications of the work that you do in terms of how can we identify young musicians who might benefit from more of this kind of experience or that kind of training and so forth. But the other was, I'm wondering, and this somehow reminds me of the NFL, the National Football League in the United States, this combine that they have where they measure everyone's agility and vertical leap, and they have this really long, complicated paper and pen kind of assessment to find out personality factors and so forth. And it's always very unclear as to how much of this is actually predictive of who's going to be successful at the professional level. So my question about selection was, and orchestral auditions are set up differently in different countries, but, but I wonder if the way that they're set up now, I mean, are orchestras maybe not getting enough data about a particular candidate's fit or ensemble playing abilities to be able to select members who would really mesh well within that ensemble. I'm not an expert on, on the practices of all the orchestras and that. Of course, I've, I've talked to some uh, musicians about uh, the audition process and I, having prepared for that sort of thing myself many years ago, have, have some idea. In my understanding, it, it varies. There are, it depends on the, the orchestras and their resources and how, what their programs are like. You know, I've, I've heard things range from you know, having a very brief audition and, and that's it. There's a trial period usually, but but whether that trial period is really how long that trial period is and what it entails really varies. And even the audition process, whether it involves a, a sectional audition where you perform just with the, the section. So I was a trombone player, as I mentioned. So with the, with the lower brass section, um, or if it's just a solo aud audition, that varies. Then the, as I mentioned, the length of the trial, 
the the weight carried by the for example the musical director versus the actual section members in where, and the rest of the orchestra um, whether to offer continuing appointment so it varies so much and there's probably not enough data because a lot of this information of course is confidential so it's not the case that one can um, collect the data and see um, the relationship between people's scores in a, in a solo audition and, and how long they actually last, whether it's a full career or not, and what the reasons were for, for not lasting, if, if unfortunately that wasn't the case. It's a, it's a tricky issue because of confidentiality and privacy concerns. I think it would be, of course, a lot of people would want to know the answer to that question. But the prevailing issue would be that I think it really varies which country you're in, um, and what what level orchestra you know um, what level of orchestra it is how busy they are how quickly they need to appoint somebody and in fact the the role whether it's a, a role where there's just one instrument per part versus a sectional arrangement and I didn't mean to put you on the spot in terms of affecting in any way the future direction of how orchestral auditions are run but I'm just curious if you know you had your research hat on and, and were thinking, oh, you know, if I'm in charge of this orchestra and I really want to get people together who are a good fit for one another, like what quirky, unusual thing that isn't being looked at right now would I want to try to inject into the process to see if I could find people who would mesh well together? Well, I would. I, I think it wouldn't hurt, put it that way, um, to assess ensemble skills. And in fact, this is something that I'd be very interested to do across orchestras of all standing, across different sections. Because I'm expecting what's important is complementarity. You don't want everybody, there's no such thing as this is the ideal combination of reactive, adaptive capacity. Because you actually need a situation where, where some individuals are good at reacting and some are good at anticipating. And perhaps, and this is a hypothesis to be tested, that might depend on instrument and role within a section, whether a section leader or, or not. But it's, it's just that. It's a hypothesis. It could be the case that it's not as important as other things and explains a very small amount of variance in what's going on so it's really negligible and one shouldn't worry about it invest much in it or make decisions based on it we really don't know my hunch would be that it is certainly worth investigating because i, I think based on my own experiences it would have i think been helpful to me at least in understanding what's going on it maybe would have allayed some frustrations and, and that sort of thing you can get the full transcript of this week's chat, plus links to various things that came up in conversation at bulletproofmusician.com slash blog.